You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and in studio with me today, I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hey, David. Hi, Susan. Welcome. And we have a special guest from the um, Northside Hospital Gwinnett Family Practice Residency Program. We have Dr. Michael Cranford. So welcome. Hi there. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here and so glad that you're going to bring up a topic um, that I think will be of real interest to many of our listeners. For those of you who don't know, at the Atlanta Healing Center, we have the residents from used to be Gwinnett Hospital Family Practice Residency, but since the merger with Northside, we now have an even longer name. It is the Northside Gwinnett Campus Family Practice Residency, and uh, we have those students rotate with us. They spend a month with us, and we like to invite the um, residents to participate. We usually give them one or two options, one of two. First is to do a radio show with us on a topic of their choice related to addiction, or we ask them to do a presentation for us before our family night on Wednesday nights as um, an education to family. So Dr. Cranford today has um, volunteered and uh, with great joy and excitement in his heart to um, to participate today and to talk about a really important um Subject, but before we go there, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your interests and how you ended up um, being interested in the subject that we're going to talk about today, which is marijuana use in high school students. So, share a little bit of your background for us, if you don't mind. Sure. So, um, like you said, I'm a second year medical resident at Northside uh, Hospital, Gwinnett. And um, I attended Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, Georgia campus in Suwannee, Georgia. So my interests were include outpatient medicine, mm-hmm. um, specifically the management of long-term uh, chronic illnesses like hypertension, diabetes. And I think one day I'd like to be a palliative medicine hospice doctor. So explain that a little bit for our listeners who may not be familiar with palliative care. Yeah, so palliative medicine is really geared towards uh, symptom management. Okay. uh, A lot of times in serious or life-limiting illness. And um, so a lot of times we're working with cancer patients Mm -hmm. um, or patients that have serious illness like um, uh, maybe amputees Mm -hmm. dealing with chronic pain or a lot of times with um, people with end-stage kidney disease or heart disease. And in that um, field of medicine is really focused on improving the quality of the life for that person, including reducing pain. Um, sometimes there's a sad part of it, which may be helping people uh, towards the end of their life, which would be the hospice care part of it. Right. Um, and uh, while that might be really challenging for many people, it takes a special heart and a special 
level of compassion and strength to be able to do that kind of work and to provide the empathy but not get overwhelmed by some of the tragedy that you see as people are coming to the ends of their lives. You know, it's interesting for, for me in terms of having the residents come through our program. Um, generally, it's it's hoping that they're going to really, really get an understanding of what addiction looks like. I know that a lot of times family members will be the ones that are coming and talking to residents about my loved one or my child or my spouse has these issues going on. Um, and, and so real often it's family members who are kind of giving you the background story related to their loved one's addiction, but also thinking in, in the line of work you're headed towards that that really is the outcome for a lot of our patients if they don't wake up and realize that, that addiction is a, a life-threatening deadly disease, um, in particular when you're talking about kidney disease or liver disease, um, um, that, that looking at the mortality that comes as a result of, of un, unmanaged addiction is a real common thing. We don't see it so much at our outpatient level of care, but it's certainly something we, we read about daily right. and we know about in, in other practices. And since addiction is a chronic illness, it often uh, shows up in family practice, internal medicine, other primary care practices, not always um, clearly identified or understood. So that's part of our hope is that as um, the residents rotate through our practice that they learn a little bit about how to recognize the disease, um, how to help have those awkward questions and conversations with patients and families, and how to, if they're not able to provide treatment there in their practice to be able to know how to get them to a place where they can um, receive the treatment they need and the collaboration with the, the other medical care that a person needs. So we're very glad to have you and glad that you're here. Now this topic, um, the use of marijuana among high school students, is an interesting one. And what brought you to this uh, particular topic as your one to present on. <laughs> yeah, so my husband is actually a high school teacher at a local high school, and so he's been teaching for about four or five years now, uh-huh. and marijuana use is a sort of a denominator for all, all the years that he's been teaching. Um, he sees it a lot with his students, and um, I actually had him sort of survey his students and and have a discussion with them and sort of write down his thoughts. Um, So right now he's sort of teaching honors and gifted students, meaning the higher performing students uh, at the high school. What grade level? So right now I believe 11, mostly 11. Okay. Um, So he said that his students, in terms of marijuana use, um, they rarely come to school high. Or, or at least in class, in his class. That's good. Um, but they, <laughs> but, but many admit to getting high outside of class, and at least one student this semester um, had obviously been and admitted to being high in class, in his class specifically. So in class discussions, a few students, um, well, rather few students reacted negatively to the idea of getting high. So most of them did not. Correct. Unlike a 
few years ago, maybe 10, 20 years ago, students would have much more of a negative reaction if you ask them, is it okay if your friends get high? Do you worry about um, students that you know that get high? So nowadays that has reversed. Right. and um, Specifically around marijuana. Yes, okay. ex- exactly. And so I think with uh, state after state legalizing in terms of medical use and in terms of recreational use, it's become a drug that's more widely accepted, especially among young people. And um, so similarly, in that few students reacted negatively to that idea of getting high, um, few of his students could adequately describe any negative consequences to um, using marijuana either. And so also in his general education classes, so like the college preparatory classes for um, more average students, he said that the usage was more frequent and that students um, tended to actually, it was more common for students to actually come in high to his classes on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. And um, students were more open to sharing about their usage. And so in the second group, the, the general education... College-bound, though. So still... St- still right. Still of the higher IQ, I guess. More academically. More academically-minded. They were, they were more open about their use. Were they, also, were they more open, did he say, related to recognizing consequences of use? He didn't say... The, I think he has these sort of conversations with his students every year. And so right now he's teaching mainly honors gifted, but in years past he taught more the general education students. So those were sort of his experiences with those. But so the honors gifted kids really didn't recognize any potential consequences for using marijuana. Right. And <laughs> so the, the press that marijuana is just a completely harmless drug right. is, is what I'm hearing is really prevalent out there, at least at this high school. Right. It, it sure is. So even the legal consequences, um, many young people are not thinking in terms of that as being a potential problem, let alone some of the medical and cognitive problems that we see with folks who are using marijuana. They're not really acknowledging. Uh, I, it was interesting at um, one of the treatment centers that I consult at, they have an adolescent program. So they treat young people ages 13 through 18. And we were just having a conversation with a family of a young man who family caught him using um, uh, cocaine. They were not worried that he was underage and drinking weekly and using marijuana at least every other day. That was not a concern for the family. But the fact that he was smoking nicotine and that he was using, had acknowledged using cocaine were the things that were their lines in the sand. Now we're going to bring him in for an evaluation. But marijuana and alcohol, even though this was a young person less than legal aged for drinking, and certainly marijuana is not legal in Georgia, uh, except under very 
limited circumstances, that was not a worry for them. I, I find it really interesting that it's not just the young people, but indeed their families and a lot of the adults in their lives have this very cavalier attitude towards the use of marijuana. To the point that they were even more concerned about nicotine than they were yes. about THC. Yes. Uh, very, very interesting uh, the 60 years plus of education about the dangers of nicotine have certainly been impressive, although being reversed because of vaping. But um, all of the years of education around the dangers of marijuana have been reversed almost completely within the last um, 10 to 15 years. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Dr. Cranford about the dangers and the use of marijuana in high school. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business practices, and fascinating business professionals to get an insider view of how America works. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. You're listening to America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is Detailing Addiction. Today, David Donaldson and myself from the Atlanta Healing Center are very happy to have with us Dr. Michael Cranford from the Northside Gwinnett Hospital Family Practice Residency Program. And Dr. Cranford is a second year, um, three years for your residency, correct? Yes. 
and he's a second-year resident looking at uh, a longer-term goal of potentially working with uh, patients with chronic pain issues and maybe end-of-life care issues, which um, i got to hand it to you, that is awesome and so greatly needed, especially as our... Our lifespan gets extended, but uh, we have more and more people living longer and longer and needing those kinds of services. So thank you for being interested in that. As I certainly approach needing those services, um, I'm very grateful. So one of the things that we were talking about on the break is the prevalence. And I alluded to it a little bit, but there's been some change in... Uh, people's attitudes towards the use of marijuana and also to how often and how frequently. So what what's going on in terms of use among adolescents and young adults? Right. So um, I pulled up some statistics. Uh, so it, the government does a survey um, on the, it's called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Mm-hmm. From the one from 2018, it showed that there's an estimated 43.5 million Americans who reported using marijuana during the past year. And when you break that down, it looks like 3 million uh, adolescents between the age of 12 and 17, so that's about 1 in 8, use marijuana in the past year. And if you expand that to 18 to 25-year-olds, about one in three, or 12 million uh, young adults used in the past year. And when you sort of break that down from the youngest that they studied, which was 8th graders to 12th graders, it looks like that 12th graders, about 22% had used in the past month. 22% in the past month. Correct. 12th graders. Of 12th graders. Okay. But 14% of 8th graders had used in their lifetime reports. So it's definitely something that uh, is pervasive across a large demographic of our young people. And a fair number of young people. I think this is the uh, thing that I would like to really um, stress is the idea that if you're waiting until your loved one is in eighth grade, you're well behind the curve. (laughs) They already know about pot. They know where to get it, how to get it, how much it costs, how to use it, all the different varieties. They know a whole lot more about pot than most adults do. So you really need to have these discussions earlier, uh, not wait until they're 12 or 13 or 14, because they potentially have already started using. They've had these discussions with their friends. For sure. And they've certainly found things to, that they're experimenting with. And seen things on uh, social media, and they have all kinds of references to it. So that's a lot of people using pot. All right. <laughs> so going from like 14% at, at eighth grade... Lifetime right, to 22% in the last month by the time they're seniors. Correct. Um, going from ages like, what, 14 to 18? And also says 44% of 12th graders um, had used marijuana in their lifetime. So I guess going from 14 
percent in lifetime of eighth graders to forty four percent by the eight by twelfth grade. So almost half had tried it, and twenty two percent had used it at least within the last month. Mm-hmm. Wow. So from the perspective of clients that we talk to, not the ones who are necessarily in the, the higher achiever classrooms, but the other ones that are there because somebody dragged them in, they pretty much will say everybody smokes. They don't look around their friend group and they don't know somebody who doesn't smoke marijuana. Um, and, and what strikes me is just that age group in particular, 14 to 18, is so formative. Right. Um, everything you're learning how to do and all your social ability to socialize and, and um, um, ask people on a date and be able to deal with rejection, all of that's being learned with marijuana going on. And interfering with the ability of their brain to figure out other ways of coping and dealing with stress or rejection, disappointment, challenges, all of those kinds of things that are part of the goals of and the torture of uh, high school students, if they're learning it under the influence of a drug or they're using a drug as a way to cope, then one of the things that is really striking when they get to be adults and enter treatment, even if marijuana is not the reason that brings them to treatment, <coughs> most of the time they've used marijuana for a long period of time. And they are, they may have a good job, they may be in a relationship, they may have completed education, but when they begin to talk about how to deal with feelings, how to cope with stress, how to do some of these things, they really are emotionally very adolescent. And it's disconcerting because they have good social skills and some language skills, and you would not recognize really how impaired they are emotionally and their ability to tolerate stress and rejection is significantly impaired and that's part of the work of the rehabilitation sometimes it's habilitation it's actually teaching them it's not oh I got out of the habit of it because of my drug use and now I need to pick that back up no we have to actually teach them how to do some of those things again pretty interesting so another thing we were talking about was the potency of the of pot. So it's not just that more um, adolescents are using it and they're using it more openly and more willing to talk about it and less shocked and concerned, but they're also they're not using the pot from my generation. <laughs> the grandma pot. <laughs> right. This is not your grandma's pot today, people. <laughs> Right, right. So it, in the early 1990s, the average THC content, and that's the, the active ingredient that gives you that, that feeling of high, uh, was roughly 3.8%. So in 2014, it tripled to about 12.2%. So, and they're also showing that the average marijuana extract contains more than 50% THC, with some samples exceeding 80%. So these trends are sort of concerning in the sense that the consequences of marijuana could actually be worse now and in the future than than they were in the past. Which is very frightening because 
back in the old days, the skunk weed that was around in my day with certainly less than 4% marijuana, people were able to get high. And people were able to have some serious impact on their cognitive skills, on their memory, on their drive, their motivation to do things. All of those things were impaired. Now it's terrifying to me to think of how some of these concentrated extracts and some of the... the um, methods of using called dabs where they take the marijuana oil like that that is available legally to some people here in the state of Georgia and they use a butane lighter and they melt it down they burn the oil off and concentrate it and some of those extracts they're called dabs are actually um, in the 90s percent and this is extremely potent and very, very um, dangerous. It's dangerous to make. People do get burned. Things do blow up. Um, but it's very dangerous for their brain. And this is where we're seeing a lot more of people with psychosis. They look and act like someone who has schizophrenia. They're paranoid. They may be having hallucinations and delusions, but they don't have schizophrenia. They don't respond to medication. This is a direct result of these high-potency marijuana products and its massive impact. And the timing that we're noticing for that to clear their systems, the ones who come in and are getting clean and we're testing them um, you know, pretty regularly watching it leave their system. We're, we're not seeing it go back up, so we know there's not new use happening, but it is taking months where it used to take a pretty standard 30 days for THC to clear a system. Now it'll be three months, four months sometimes before somebody tests negative. Wow. <coughs> I had no idea about that part. Wow. <laughs> we, we even shocked the teacher today. Um, yes, uh, so it's, it's a much longer process to, to clear the body and to clear the brain. My concern, and I know people think I'm an old fuddy-duddy, but only because it's true and I am, but um, my concern is not just that people are going to become addicted, because, yes, this is addictive, um, but how addictive is it? Right. So that's a good question. A lot of people don't really consider marijuana addictive. Um, but it, that has shown that 30% of those who use marijuana will develop some degree of use disorder, um, which can take the form of addiction. Um, so especially people who begin using marijuana before the age of 18, it shows that they're four to seven times more likely to develop uh, a use disorder than if they had started when they were adults. Um, and about 17% of those who start using in their teens will develop a dependence. Um, and it, in 2015, actually, about four million people in the U.S. met the criteria for that marijuana use disorder. So the addictive part of it is significant, and it it has um, tremendous impacts on the brain because of the endocannabinoid system. So this is a really important system that is exquisitely important as an adolescent. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk a little bit about that and how addiction matters. So please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, 
You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Good morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon cutting ceremony and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project you can donate at jcvets.org the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is Detailing Addiction, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio with me on David Donaldson is our special guest, Dr. Michael Cranford, who is a second-year resident at the Northside Gwinnett Family Practice Residency Program. And he has been rotating through our practice and has agreed to come and educate us on marijuana, and particularly marijuana in the adolescent and early um, young adult years, which I think 
for me, as we were talking right um, before the break, uh, yes, the worrisome part is not just those folks that go on to have the disease of addiction and have problems with stopping this drug, but I'm worried about the effect of marijuana on the growth and development of the young person's brain. So we have the pleasure center in the brain that releases dopamine and rewards. That's what gets them high. So, of course, it has effect there. But the endocannabinoid system is all over the brain, from the front of the brain to the back of the brain. Our balance, our um, motor and sensory centers are affected. Our memory centers, our burglar alarm systems, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, our judgment, our learning, our um, motivation centers are affected. So we have these endocannabinoids. We have natural little molecules that are very similar to the THC or the active ingredient in marijuana. We have those receptors all over our brain and, in fact, all over our body. This system, though, in the brain is pretty specific for helping young people continue to be rewarded enough to keep doing all of those things that are really hard to do. So as a child, as an adolescent, we have to learn our times tables. We have to learn how to kick the soccer ball down the field. We have to learn how to play the violin. We have to do a lot of things that take practice, 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 and they aren't necessarily all that fun. So the endocannabinoid system helps people have a a small reward for small steps and small gains. I got my three times tables. That's so good. I can't wait to do my fours. So the endocannabinoid system helps keep that individual motivated to do all of those things. And it's an exquisitely important system. When you overwhelm it with marijuana that attaches to all of these receptors and gives the brain one big walloping reward much better than they could ever get from times tables or even scoring a winning goal in soccer, they no longer need to do all of those hard things. They can get this reward, plus they can get dopamine and get high. Why would you bother? Why would you want to? Where's your motivation? I don't want to play sports anymore. I don't want to hang out with my friends. I don't want to go outside. I don't want to hang out and um, and and watch um, musicals or go to um, to play, even play video video games. Often they don't have the motivation anymore because that reward system can be engaged at an exponentially greater level than they ever could just by doing the activities of childhood. So their brain just sort of says, why bother? And that's the thing that I would be really interested in hearing from your husband about if he sees that kind of impact and those kinds of changes in in the students as they begin to engage, whether or not they have the disease of addiction and even whether or not they use every day, this idea that it is impacting this important developmental learning and reward center is really scary to me. Right. He has, like I said, it's sort of a common theme throughout all his semesters of teaching thus far. So he he has uh, sort of complained, if you will, (laughs) about uh, students' lack of interest 
right. uh, their lack of engagement in class, um, and sort of an overall apathy to to learn when they're in the classroom. And those are usually specifically the students who he knows are frequent users because mm-hmm. he's seen them frequently yes. come to school high. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so at least in that uh, that uh, circumstance, I think that uh, it, it is something really prevalent and um, something that does have noticeable side effects because these kids, they think that no one... No one can tell that they're, right. <laughs> that that they're, they're high. high, but uh, it's it's very obvious to um, to him and a lot of other students and a lot of other teachers. It is um, sometimes, though, not very obvious to family members, which I find <laughs> very interesting. But, and I think part of not being obvious to family members or teachers who are kind of living with it day in, day out, and they're kind of getting adjusted to it. Um, But when you, in our last segment, we were talking about the prevalence of them that are going to meet the criteria for addiction. Right. And we'll hear those words, but not really think about what that really means. And what that means is that they're losing interest in the things they should be doing. They're having... Um, clinically significant stressful situations in their daily life right. that's just getting medicated with the marijuana and they're, they're slowly checking off boxes to meet that criteria. There's like specific criteria for the disease of addiction that they, the parents and, and teachers are watching the kids check off but not really recognizing it. And the idea that you're having an opportunity to maybe educate him a little bit about what addiction is so that when he's seeing the, these kids check off these boxes, because, I mean, that is what's going on. We're watching the disease right. spread. And and uh, we were talking a little before about um, how addictive marijuana mm-hmm. can be. So I was sort of curious as to what you see in your patient population. When they come to you... Uh, do they see marijuana as a problem? Perhaps they're using other um, right. drugs, and maybe they saw that they had a problem mm-hmm. with those, but not with marijuana. Um, and and as they go through your program, do they do they see it as a later on as uh, an addictive uh, drug? So those are very good questions, and the answer is sort of. <laughs> We occasionally will have someone present that that is the on, their only drug that they're using. That, well, that and nicotine usually. Um, but those are pretty rare, and we take pictures of them because they're zebras, and it's, it's pretty unusual to see someone who only uses one substance. But we do have people that is their primary dopamine releaser of choice. For the most part... People come in because they've gotten in trouble with other drugs or they've gotten arrested or their mama found out or something has happened to create some pressure on them. They're pretty clear usually that they need to stop the cocaine, they need to stop the heroin, they need to stop the methamphetamine. They they get that. But when we also talk to them about, and you really can't use alcohol, and you can't use 
marijuana and we want you to stop smoking and we'd like you to decrease the caffeine intake, um, that really gets their attention because they don't think of that as, first of all, a problem for them. Would you say? Yeah, absolutely. They don't see it at all. What I've been thinking as you were talking about that was in, in my earlier years in this field, we would never see people come into addiction treatment right. for marijuana. Um, they, they would be there for other things, and marijuana would always be part of the history. But if marijuana was the only substance, they never came to addiction treatment. But we would get sent back to the psychiatric portion of the hospital to do evaluations, and there would be late 20s, early 30s, year old people who were there for anxiety disorders and depressive disorders who have a significant history of marijuana use. And we actually do still see that today at the Atlanta Healing Center with people not showing up wanting admission into our addiction program, but wanting admission to have neurofeedback for attention deficit issues or to have Dr. Blank do medication issues for depression. But it truly is still long-term marijuana use that's manifesting with with anxiety and with depressive issues and they're still not at a point of saying yes i have addiction and interestingly as they go along and we challenge them well if it's not a problem for you if it's if marijuana isn't a problem then just let's just don't use it will you give me a commitment not to do it for a week or two weeks or a month or while you're in treatment that's when the light goes off for them, that it is very difficult for them not to use and that they do have symptoms of withdrawal and they do have cravings and they do have preoccupation and there are physiological changes. Just as you mentioned, David, anxiety, insomnia, uh, they can't sleep. So we talk a lot about the law of uh, inverse reaction. So whatever marijuana does for you, Um, When you're using it, the opposite is what happens in withdrawal. So if it calms you down and makes you sociable, helps you sleep, increases your appetite, gives you the munchies, when you take it away, you now can't sleep, you're anxious, you're restless, uh, you don't eat, you have a lot of physiological changes that are uncomfortable and last a long time. And many of our folks, when we give them the challenge, don't use marijuana, come to realize, guess what? This is my primary addiction. This is my longest addiction. I've used marijuana from the time I was seven or eight years old. And yes, I got in trouble with alcohol in high school, and I got in trouble with cocaine in college, and now I'm using heroin, but guess what? I've always used pot. And now that you ask me not to, I can't. I can't stop. And we have had a couple of people fail (coughs) their probation and their parole Hmm. and have had to go to jail. We've got them off methamphetamine. We've got them off heroin or cocaine. But we can't get them to stop pot, and they've gone to prison. So that's how hard and how addictive this is. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, is it a gateway drug? Please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. 
Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. This is America's Web Radio, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Today in studio, David Donaldson and I are very happy to welcome our special guest. Very grateful to the um, Northside Hospital Family Practice Residency Program that shares their residence with us, and we're very grateful to Dr. Michael um, Cron for, for helping us with this presentation and the help that he's been um, with our patients, and we've enjoyed having him, and we're grateful that you're with us today. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. So we've been talking about marijuana and marijuana use in this particular age group. And one of the things that we commented on was that, you know, not everybody has a problem with marijuana. Um, as you can tell from the number of people who actually use it, versus the number of people who can't stop using it when their life or their um, circumstances say you must, um, many people are able to use it without any problem. But there are those that do have issues, and there are some long-term effects. And some of these studies have actually been done in mice and rats, which many people say, well, how is that relevant at all? But it is very relevant because the rat brain and the human brain are very, very similar. We just have an extra layer um, that they don't have, but our... um, uh, the addiction part of our brain and the addiction part of their brain very similar. So 
So what do anybody we that's been listening to Dr. Blank for any period of time <laughs> or matter just sees her face gets animated when she knows we're about to be talking about rats yes. and mice. You found some interesting studies related to. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I'm glad we can share that with you. Um, so really evidence from animal research and, and a growing number of, of human studies show that marijuana... Um, mm-hmm. Exposure during the development phase of of the brain can cause long term side effects and eighteen and uh, possibly permanent adverse changes. Yes. So one study I found showed that exposure to THC during adolescence for for rats. Um, do you know the age for that? I don't actually. <laughs> um, but they those rats showed notable problems with specific learning and memory tasks later in life. And so those cognitive impairments in the adult rats exposed to THC, um, those changes were really shown in the hippocampus, which we know is primarily deals with memory. Right. Um, so it also showed that um, adolescents exposed to THC um, were associated with altered reward systems, sort of like where you were mm-hmm. alluding to earlier, and increased the likelihood that um, they would actually self-administer other drugs when given the opportunity. Right. So, so in the rat studies or mice studies, there was a bit of a gateway aspect to marijuana. Right, and and that really leads to the question, you know, is marijuana a gateway drug? And uh, I think society at large would say no. Right. Um, But research has shown that uh, marijuana use is likely to precede use of other drugs and the development of addiction with other substances. Um, Could you comment on that? So I think that's uh, an Im- important distinction. Again, not everybody who uses marijuana is going to have trouble with marijuana itself or with other drugs. The difficulty, though, is that those brains that are exposed to marijuana, the earlier they are, the more likely they are to keep using um, is the problem number one. And the problem number two, the more likely they are to also be hanging around with and having friends who use marijuana and who use other drugs. So they have increased availability and exposure. These days, drug dealers are rarely just about one drug. They are now full-service operations. And so you may be going to them just to buy your marijuana, but they may give you free samples, just like Costco gets me to buy all so- sorts of crap that I don't need. Um, the the wholesale, free sale drug dealers these days um, will now give you a sample. Well, just try a little bit of this and try a little bit of that. You're much more likely to try a little bit of this and try a little bit of that if you're working and dealing with a drug dealer to service your marijuana habit. So you have to definitely be careful around those ladies at the end of the Costco stands with the with the healthy candies. <laughs> right. <laughs> David fell <laughs> fell victim just yesterday. And you continue today. It was really quite good. Um, 
there's an interesting study out of California where they were thinking that once marijuana was legal, um, people would be getting less prescriptions for opiates, and they would um, have have they'd be more able to manage their pain with marijuana. And what they found was that the the amount of prescriptions did not change at all, but the patient's ability to self self um, identify their pain level <clears throat> to when they're looking at their scale of faces and being able to say this is how I'm feeling. This is up three out of ten. To be able to really rate their pain got worse as their level of marijuana usage increased. So speaking to what you were just talking about, that <clears throat> that um, early exposure to THC impacting or as a lead into to them using other substances to manage their pain or to manage their other issues, I think con- continues to be shown in in human studies. And it Call is it rat studies. Yes, <laughs> it's rats with two legs <laughs> with, with two legs and um, a um, a cortex that the um, that the little rats don't have. Uh, so it, that's it, it's very interesting to see the the correlation. So a gateway drug, we have very few people that we treat, and we know this because we ask questions. Very few people that we treat that have not used marijuana. That marijuana was not one of the first two or three substances that they used. Nicotine, marijuana, alcohol, those are sort of the three substances that most people have been exposed to and that many people then from there go on to continue to use just those substances, just, I'm using the air quotes here, but um, many of them think they're leaving it behind, but in reality they're really not leaving marijuana behind. They're adding to it they may be using other substances. Sometimes they, the the price of heroin is so expensive um, because of their high level of use that they don't can't afford pot. But the minute we take the heroin away, they they start using pot again. Mm-hmm. So it becomes. Um, sometimes an economic choice that the person has to make and determine which substances they're going to put their resources towards. But marijuana, in my opinion, does seem to be a gateway drug for people who are vulnerable and who have the genetic predisposition, the social stresses, and the exposure to go on to develop the disease of addiction and the use of other drugs. So... um, so that's a long-winded answer to, yes, I think it is a gateway drug, but not everybody who uses a substance is going to become addicted or have a, a problem with that substance. Right. And when they, moving on from rats, uh, when, when, you, when you do look at humans and human subjects, um, they, I saw one study that they imaged the brain mm-hmm. of marijuana users to actually see uh, the difference, and uh, some studies suggested that regular marijuana use in adolescence was associated with um, actually altering the connectivity of the brain and reduced volume in regions of the brain which were associated with things such as memory, learning, and even impulse control. Um, compared to those who don't use. So uh, I know that at Atlanta Healing Center, we actually um, 
use a, a different type of imaging, sort of mm-hmm. brain mapping. What what sort of things do you see in in your patients who use marijuana on those brain mappings? Well, we see some changes, unfortunately, and changes that sometimes take a long time if they're ever going to be reversed. We see decrease in cognitive function. So that's we see that in our beta waves. Those are usually the 14 to 20 beats per second, relatively fast brain waves that we should all be in right now because we're communicating and talking, and most adults are in beta wave most of the day. So that's the brain wave that that um, drives your car and does your work and has conversations with people. When we look at someone who has been using pot, we see decreases in beta. So their cognitive functioning globally, not just in a, a spot where their memory is or over here where their coordination is, but globally, their whole brain is a, has a decreased function. And um, they're not operating to the expected level of cognitive um, awareness that when we compare their brain to other men or women their age, they're not functioning well. We often see increased anxiety, disruption in delta waves, which are the sleep waves. Deep, restful, regenerative sleep waves are often impaired. And theta waves, which are also a sleep wave, we see increased levels of theta. That's usually the stress-related anxiety and also some of the neuroendocrine dysfunction that happens with chronic use of um, marijuana. So we see that reflected in the theta waves. Attention is theta, and that's where we see it. So thank you so much, Dr. Cranford, uh, for being with us. Uh, We thank the Gwinnett um, uh, Family Practice Residency, Dr. Johnson and Carol Miner, and we thank all of you, our listeners, and we look forward to seeing you next week on Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.